Good morning. morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and our text this morning will begin in verse 15. Again, that's John 14, verse 15. This is God's holy and inspired word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, this is God's Word. Our passage this morning continues a section in John's Gospel frequently referred to as the Farewell Discourse. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and he's taking this opportunity to comfort his disciples for what they're about to experience, for what he himself is about to experience. In verses 1 through 14 of John 14, Jesus tells the disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no salvation, there is no access to the Father outside of him. On the other hand, Jesus also says that those who do believe in him will participate in his own work the work of spreading the good news of salvation, and that all for the glory of God the Father. Now Jesus moves into a discussion of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the one whom Jesus refers to as another helper, the Spirit of Truth. There are five moments in the farewell discourse where Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. Our passage this morning is the first. Later in verse 26 is the second when he says that the Helper will bring to remembrance all that he has said to the disciples. Then in chapter 15, verse 26, we see the third. Jesus says the Helper will come and he will bear witness about me, about Jesus. And then we find two more mentions in chapter 16 explaining how the Spirit interacts with the world and how he interacts with Christians, with believers, respectively. The same encouragement, the same encouragement runs throughout all five of these sections in the farewell discourse. The Spirit is the helper. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth who will lead all of God's people into truth. That is to say, He will lead them to the way and the truth and the life. He will lead them to life and fellowship with the Father. They will love God and they will be loved by God. That brings us to the first section of our passage this morning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Now, this may be a stretch, but most seem to think that love is a good thing. Most people. Few, I've heard, I've heard few people say that they're lining up to be in the anti-love party. On the contrary, we read about love, we watch movies about love, we sing songs and we hear songs about love. I'm not referring to the church now, I'm referring to us all as a culture. We see love written across colorful flags in bold letters. Taylor Swift has made her entire career off of love, I would argue, with her latest album, Lover, selling nearly 680,000, 680, 1,000 copies in its first week earlier this year. And that's nothing new for a society that's been singing songs like All You Need Is Love and Let There Be Love for decades. We would not be surprised then if non-Christians appreciate another passage written by the Apostle John, this coming from one of his epistles. 1 John 4, where he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, Because God is love. God is love. That sounds great. Right? But do they realize that when John says God is love, he's thinking about what Jesus has already said about love. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Commandments. Rules. That seems to run a little contrary to what we would think, what our culture might think of as love. I'm not a rules person, I'm just about love. It's something we hear, it's something we hear people say. But you see, for God, love and obedience are inseparable. If you love God, you listen to Him. What does it say in John 10? What does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. It's inseparable, love and obedience. Obedience is the fruit of a healthy tree. Obedience is the thing that demonstrates that salvation is genuine, that there's a real love for Jesus rooted down in the soul. The disciples love Jesus, and so they will keep his commandments. Except they didn't, did they? Not always. There were times where they failed before Jesus said this in our passage, and there are times after, immediately after, when they scatter. Peter himself denies Jesus three times. The apostles did not suddenly become perfect people, in other words. And what about us? Rather than comforting, we might see Jesus' words here, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and we might get a little nervous. Because, in fact, we have all broken God's commandments, and we continue to do so. As it says in the Psalms, we have all turned aside from what is good. We've chosen our own way, sinning with our hands, as well as with our hearts, as well as with our mouths, and with our minds. And yes, that's something that happened to us before we met Jesus, but I guarantee you it's something that's happening to you after, and in fact, maybe something that's been happening today. We continue to sin and break God's commandments. And this is the kind of thing that Satan, the accuser, loves. And he reminds us. He tells us to follow the logic. Okay, Jesus says, if you love me, 
you'll keep my commandments. Well, in fact, you did not keep his commandments, so therefore, you must not love Jesus. And we can fall into that pattern of thought so easily. It can grip us and depress us. We sin, and that sin causes us to doubt whether we're saved. It causes us to doubt everything, whether we even really love Jesus to begin with. It's like a twisted version of that game you sometimes see children playing with pedals. He loves me, he loves me not, except we reverse it. And we say, I love him. I love him not. If we think our salvation turns on our ability to obey Jesus, on our ability to love, that's our destiny. Perpetual doubt. Never fully sure if we measure up to God's standard. But that's not the destiny that you have in Christ. And that's not the destiny that he offers you here in the Gospel of John. Jesus, in fact, kept the law. He obeyed perfectly. He loved perfectly. And those who believe in Jesus Christ have that perfect love credited to them. That's what we mean when we talk about saving faith. Saving faith is not a faith that works up enough effort that we could obey and that we could love. Saving faith receives and rests in Christ alone for eternal life. In Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. In Christ alone for that perfect record that justifies us before the throne room of grace and before God our Father. And yet, it is even more than that. Because when Jesus said, you will keep my commandments, that wasn't just a synonym for, I will keep my commandments. He meant it. You will keep my commandments. Because he planned to work that loving obedience into them. And to everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It's exactly what we find in other passages of Scripture. Namely, Ephesians 2, we find it clearly expressed where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the Christian's destiny. You're not saved by works, but you're saved to them. You've been fashioned for them. God is at work in your heart, renovating it, sanctifying you, so that you may be more and more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus promises. If we love Him, we will keep His commandments. And that sets us up for how this works out. Why are we going to keep His commandments? Because God Himself will give us the power to love Him through His Holy Spirit. That's where this is driving us now. The Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor it knows Him, but you know Him. For He dwells with you And he will be in you. See, it's no coincidence that Jesus moves from verse 15 into this this discussion of the Holy Spirit. 
This promise to send another helper. This helper is the how. He's the one who makes it possible for us to love God and to keep his commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word helper, I usually, my first thought, you heard earlier that I was a LEARN student, you think about the person in the classroom who sits there in the back and and helps, who makes sure that everything's running okay. And some of you know what this is like. There's one kid that's running around the class, There's another who has glue in her hair. There's a third who's actually eating the glue. And you're just trying to keep the chaos at bay. Well, as funny as that may be, in a way, that is actually a little bit of what Jesus is describing here. You see, the word that that we have translated for us as helper, or if you have another translation, it may be a different word, is parakletos, which we see in English come into the language as this word paraclete. That's an old word. It's a word we don't see very often. We only read about it in old books or hear about it in old hymns. Hymns like, Come, Holy Spirit, Come, which was in the old Blue Trinity hymnals that we used to sing from. At least in our church in Providence, we used to sing from. Hear this. This from that hymn, this this stanza, where it says, Cheer, this is a prayer, it's a song. Cheer our desponding hearts, thou heavenly paraclete. Thou heavenly helper. Give us to lie with humble hopes at our Redeemer's feet. Now, different Bible translations will render this word, parakletos, in different ways. Some will say counselor. Some will say advocate. Some will say comforter. Counselor, comforter, keeper. Spirit we long to embrace. See, the basic idea here is that this is someone who will support us. This is someone who will encourage us, who will defend us. This is the encouragement that Jesus was offering to his disciples. And it's exactly what Jesus has himself been to his disciples in his earthly ministry. He has been their helper so far. And now, as he is about to leave, he says, I'm going to send you another. Now, it may have been a surprise to the disciples when Jesus said, you know him, for he dwells with you. Even more alarming when Jesus says that same spirit will soon dwell in them. Looking back in the full scope of Scripture, in the canon of Scripture, we see that this is chiefly a reference, we think, to Pentecost. Pentecost, that moment recorded in Acts 2. By that time, Jesus has risen from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. And the disciples are now all gathered in one place. And the account says for us, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, it was a radical moment in history. Nothing has been the same since. Just as Jesus said, the Spirit had come in force to make his home in the hearts of human beings beginning with the apostles and radiating outward to the entire church, to every man, woman, and child who would call upon the name of the Lord, including you. If you are here today and you've called upon the name of Jesus, that Holy Spirit dwells with you. The Holy Spirit dwells, in fact, in each Christian. 
In fact, the Holy Spirit makes the difference between those who believe and those who do not. Because He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor does it know Him. They're blind. The world. They're blind. Jesus has already said this earlier in the Gospel in John 3 when He says, the light, referring to Himself, the light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. These are people who want nothing to do with the light of Christ. To them, the revealing wisdom of God is simply foolishness. It reminds me of a story that my, one of my professors at Westminster was telling us earlier in the semester. He was at a, a different circumstance. I think he was actually in Europe at the time, teaching, and he was invited to a dinner with other church historians. And so they all gather together, and they're having this dinner, and he's having a conversation, and suddenly the subject of the Bible comes up. And the man sitting next to him says, wait, this is another historian, another church historian. Wait a second. You actually believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And my professor says, yes, yes I do. Fascinating. Do you go to church? Why, yes, I'm actually an elder at my church. They still have elders? You see where the conversation is going. By the end of the night... A whole group of these church historians had surrounded this one man and were asking him questions about what it was like to believe the Bible, what it was like to be a member of the church. Because you see, they were marveling that a man who would actually study the church could be a member of it. Because to them it was just foolishness. They spent their lives studying the Word of God, the Word of God in history. They studied Martin Luther. They studied John Calvin. They studied Augustine. They studied Billy Graham. And yet their hearts were hardened and their eyes were dimmed because that's how the world thinks. Maybe they see this talk about Christ's and Holy Spirit's as something nice for people who don't know any better. Maybe they see it as something a little more sinister. Either way, they show that they neither see the Spirit nor know Him they are dead in their trespasses and their sins, as it says in Ephesians, again, following the course of this world. Except, except in Ephesians, following the course of this world, when Paul wrote that specific passage, he was not referring to those people. He was not referring, although they're certainly included, they are following the course of this world, but he wasn't referring to the people outside of Christ because he was saying that these were Christians and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's how we were. That's how we all were. We were rebels against God, against the living and holy God, the King and the Creator of this universe. We were dead, spiritually dead, and we loved darkness rather than light. I say that as someone who grew up in the church. We were rebels, born to rebel. But Paul in Ephesians doesn't leave us there, neither does Jesus. But God, 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And how does he do that? He does that by his Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life. You see, the Spirit makes you alive. The Spirit takes away your heart of stone and He gives you a heart of flesh. Jesus confirms this for us. He says this is a heart that hears God's Word and that receives it. He says just as much in John 14, later, where He says the Helper, the Holy Spirit, He will teach you all things and bring into your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's a reminder. He's a life-giving reminder. The Holy Spirit sets that life-giving word in our hearts. The gospel of our salvation. It's just as our Lord declared so many years earlier through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, I myself will put their, my law within them within my people. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what makes the Christian distinct. That's what sets them apart from the rest of the world. It's the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who kindles your heart with a gospel flame. He is the ember whose light the world does not see, whose heat the world does not know, but you know Him. You who are in Christ, you know Him, the Holy Spirit, for He dwells with you and is in you. The Holy Spirit sets you apart from the rest of the world. This was a very important message for the disciples. This was an important message for them on that night because they were about to undergo a fierce persecution. It wasn't going to end after Jesus' resurrection. In fact, it would only increase. By church tradition, all but one apostle will be martyred. That apostle being John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. You see, Jesus himself would be crucified. Even after he arose from the dead... He would ascend into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and yet through it all, he would never leave them, nor would he forsake them. And so Jesus goes on and he says, I will not, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know That I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I will not leave you as orphans. When I I read that, my first thought is my own daughter. Some of you will understand this phenomenon happens when you're a new parent, and I'm sure it happens ever afterward. (laughs) You're pacing back and forth there with a baby in your arms, right? It's the middle of the night. You want to go to sleep? Nope. Baby's in your arms. Pacing back and forth, you finally lull her to sleep. So you place her in her crib, you get back into bed. One, two, three, and then she cries. 
It is so frustrating because I'm right there. Our crib is in our room, actually. It's right next to our bed. I haven't left. I'm there. I'm not going to take off. I'm not leaving you to fend for yourself. I am with you. That's what I want to say to my daughter. Of course, she cannot understand me. Um, But that's how I feel. And in a way, Jesus is saying the same thing to the disciples, isn't he? I may not always be right next to you. I may not walk with you in the same way that I have been for the last three years of my ministry. This is him speaking to the disciples. But I am not going to abandon you. I will be with you. I will come to you. You see, in one sense, you could say that Jesus made good on that promise after the resurrection because he physically did return to the disciples. He he physically did walk and eat with them and spoke with them. When he arose, Jesus proved that he was who he says he was. He is who he says he is, in fact. He is our Savior, the one who tramples death, the Son of God who secures our salvation. But that doesn't quite capture the whole picture of what he's talking about here. In John 14. Because even after he meets with the disciples, he does leave them again, doesn't he? He ascends into heaven. Physically speaking, he's gone. So, is he talking about his second coming, when he returns again in glory to judge the living and the dead? Some scholars, some biblical commentators think that is what he's referring to here in John 14. His second coming. And that certainly would be a tremendous comfort. It is a tremendous comfort. It's something we should never forget, that our Savior is coming again. He will return physically. He will war against his enemies with the sword of his mouth, and he will gather all of his people to himself, into the new Jerusalem. But that's still in the future. The disciples are long dead today, and there is a chance that we ourselves will die before our Savior returns. So when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, we should understand him to mean exactly what he's been saying. He means that I will not leave you because the abiding presence of God, of my presence, will endure with you by the Holy Spirit. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referring to. It's why Paul calls the Spirit in Romans the Spirit of Christ. Because he is. He's the Spirit of Christ. While God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, they are united along with the Father as one God, same in substance, equal in power and in glory. And it's because of that relationship, because of that that essence of God in three persons. We see the Spirit is able to take up the same work of Jesus. He's able to take up that work of Jesus for us, with us, by us, and in us. We see Jesus today through the eyes of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit that we have the Bible, in fact. The Word of God has come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit that we have that Word of God preached to us, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. The Holy Spirit reaches our hearts, declaring to us all things concerning salvation. He trains us to renounce ungodliness. 
He convicts us. He comforts us. He equips us for every good work. Without him, we're blind. With him, we see Jesus. We see what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do again when he comes. We see Jesus himself, no less, through the Holy Spirit. Today. Today. If your hearts are not hardened. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now the relationship between each member of the Trinity is certainly wading into the deep end of the theological swimming pool. But we have to swim there because it directly concerns not just our own salvation, what we think about the Trinity and what we believe, but God's glory, which is our chief end, which is what we're here for. The Father sent the Son into the world that He might live a perfect life, yet die a sinner's death on our behalf. That is redemption accomplished for us. We need to believe that. That's redemption accomplished. And now, the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption. To apply that redemption now to each and every one of us. To our hearts. Uniting us to Jesus. For just as it is written, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give your mortal bodies, give to your mortal bodies rather, through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, the power of the Holy Spirit is not some generic power. You hear about this sometimes. The power of the Holy Spirit. I just need that power. I need the power. What is the power? It's not some vague strength. It's not a moral encouragement. It's the very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It's the resurrection power. By that life-giving resurrection power, you are united. You're fused. You're united to God the Son. And to be quite frank, that makes you family. We want to we understand the majesty of God. We want to respect that. But we also don't want to trample over the categories that He gives us in the Bible. And He calls us family. United to Jesus. God the Son. Your family. You, who have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again in Romans. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. That's our inheritance That is what we have because we have been adopted into the household of God. We can stand in the presence of our Heavenly Father as it says in the book of Hebrews. We can stand in that presence confidence that we will receive mercy and find grace in our hour of need. You're God's child. If you're in Christ, you're God's child. He will not leave you as an orphan. Rather, As our church's confession states, God the Father pities us. 
He protects us. He provides for us. He will rebuke us when we sin, but He will by no means cast us away. Our inheritance is sealed. It's set on lock by the power of the Holy Spirit. The seal of our inheritance. We are heirs to an everlasting salvation. Now we come to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. We've come full circle. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, you show the evidence that you love him. And those two bookends will drive us again and again to the center of this passage, the center of which is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. This loving obedience is made possible only by this Helper who abides with us, who abides in us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to lovingly obey our Savior. But again, though our salvation is sealed, though that is guaranteed, no one can take that away, no one can diminish that, there remains a work that God plans to accomplish in us. Because you see, we've been declared holy in Christ. And now... God commands us to work out that salvation with fear and trembling because He, through the Holy Spirit, is at work in us. As Paul says elsewhere in the book of Colossians, for this I toil, referring to his own ministry, his work, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So how does that play out in our lives? How are we continually sanctified by the power of this Holy Spirit that we obey Jesus more, that we love Him more? Well, as we close, I'd like to just offer a few key and ordinary ways that this happens. First, to obey Jesus, we have to actually listen to Him. Remember again what we said earlier from John 10, My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. They hear. They listen. You can't obey God if you don't know what He said. Now that may seem like common sense, but how often is that something that we just completely ignore? When God has told us something in His Word, and either we've not spent the time to study it, or, more likely, we just don't want to see it there when we want to do something else, something else that's more in keeping with our own way. You see, we should be hungry for the study of God's Word and to hear that Word preached to us on Sunday and to even taste it, to taste it physically in the, present, in the Lord's Supper, in the spiritual presence of Christ, the Word made visible for us, tactile for us, and in the baptism, remembering our own baptisms and rejoicing when we see others baptized in the triune name of God, God's holy word made manifest now to us. More desired to be than gold. More desired to be than gold, says Psalm 19. Yea, even much fine gold, sweeter than drippings of honey and the honeycomb. 
Or take Psalm 119, where it says, I have stored up your word in my heart, that I may not sin against you, God. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. You see, the psalmist has such a high appraisal for God's word that he's gone, he's not even just reading it or studying it, he's internalizing it. He's meditating on it. He's memorizing it. Turning it over in his heart and in his mind, no doubt, in the good times and in the bad. Is that how we live? Sometimes, thankfully, I think actually it is. I see people in the church, in my own church, and no doubt I'm sure there are people here in this congregation who live that way, who have that high appraisal for the Word, who memorize it, who dedicate, who listen to it. But if we're honest, all of us encounter times when meditating on God's Word, when listening, when listening to me right now, speaking about God's Word, is the last thing we want to do. But it's... (laughs) But it's especially in those times when we need to remember that that Word, that's the life-giving Word, that's the Holy Spirit working in us. We need that Word. Most assuredly, when we don't want it, we need that Word. We need that resurrection power speaking into our lives, that Gospel Word. See, Jesus has not left us as orphans. He's left us with our Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And He's speaking to us through His Word. He continually points us back to the Bible. He points us back to what He spoke by the prophets and the apostles. And we need to hear that message. No matter what season of life we're in. No matter how much time. No matter how busy we are. We need to hear it. And we need to meditate on it. That's one ordinary way. I have just just another Listening is important. That's the first way that the Spirit leads us to lovingly obey Jesus Christ. And the second is that if we're going to obey Jesus, we really need to pray in His name. We need to pray. Whatever you ask in my name, that's Jesus speaking, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Elsewhere, he says, if you who know how to give good gifts to your children, or rather, if you know, if that's what you do, you, you, you like to give gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things? Yes, the best thing. How much more will He give of His Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? You see, we are united to Jesus And that means that we are children and that we are heirs to the holy, almighty God. And that means that we have His ear. Your children. Do you listen to them? Well, God certainly listens to His children. So if that's the case, why would we ever remain silent? We have access to the Father. Do we think He's not listening? Have we been praying and we haven't had the answer or not the answer that we've expected? Have we gone for years not seeing the fruit that we've been asking? Well, I can most assure you, this morning, I can say this with the conviction of of the Word of God, that no matter what your life circumstance has been or what it will be, your Father hears you. He hears your prayers. Amen. I'm reminded of a story 
I heard recently um, a man whose, whose, whose daughter was stillborn. And he was explaining this, this event to his young son at the time. Dad, why, why, is, why is she not coming home with us? And, and this man came up with this, with this analogy. He said, you know, God is good. And he loves us and he listens to us. But sometimes it's just hard for us to see. Now, take the moon. The moon is always round. The moon is always round. But there are some nights where we don't see it like that. And it's important that we remember that no matter what the moon looks like, whether we see it as a half moon, whether we see it as a crescent moon, whether we see it as nothing at all and it's pitch black, the moon is still round. And God's goodness is still there. And he listens to us. And he hears us. And he cares for us. Because he's not left us as orphans. What if we know that God's there, but we feel insecure about our own prayers? What if we feel like our prayers are inadequate? Or what if what happens frequently, we just don't even know what to pray? We come to a circumstance and we say, God, I can't even, I, I, I don't even have, I don't have the capital, I don't have the, the piety, I don't have the holiness to pray for whatever this is. I can't do it. Well, if we come to a place like that in our lives where we feel like we just can't pray, we don't have the energy, we don't have the words, remember this. And this I do truly want to close with. The words of the Holy Spirit. Remember that we have a helper. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints The Spirit intercedes for you. The Spirit helps all according to the will of God. Let's pray now. Our Holy Father, we come to you in prayer. Lord, you know our weakness, you know our concerns, you know our thoughts. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength to live according to your will, that we would obey you, that we would love you. And Lord, we cannot do this in our strength. We need you. We need the power of your Holy Spirit in us. We need the comfort of your Holy Spirit next to us, convicting us, building us up. God, our words are hollow and fall to the ground, but when they're filled with your power, Lord, they do not return void. Pray now that you would work in our hearts and that you would... Revive us, O God, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.